0: I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examine. Throughout history, we've been led to believe that human nature is selfish, and without societal structures, we'll all be,
1: well, mean and nasty. But there's plenty of evidence to suggest the exact opposite. There's a disaster research center in the United States and they've done more than 500 case studies. And again and again, what you actually get is an explosion of altruism and cooperation. People from the left to the right, young, old, rich, poor, working together. That's really the common response. It's just that people at the top often believe that the opposite is happening.
0: So are simple acts of kindness contagious? Could human nature evolve to become even friendlier
1: and more cooperative? We are the product of survival of the friendliest, which means that for millennia, it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation.
0: Historian and author Rutger Bregman's hopeful case for our common decency and why this matters. That's coming up on Life Examined. Throughout our history, humans have shown themselves to be capable of unspeakable atrocities like genocide and cruelty. We have this idea, perpetuated in our culture, that we have a dark side, that when left to our own devices, we'll act in our own self-interests and often to the detriment of others. Whether in fairy tales, movies, or our news feeds, evil is everywhere, threatening our very existence. But is this really the case? Have we been fed the wrong idea about human nature? Dutch historian Rutger Bregman argues that we've been misled about who we are Far from being selfish and despite our dark history, human nature is evolving to be kinder and more cooperative. So, how do we go from selfish to selfless? In his book, Humankind A Hopeful History, Bregman examines the science and the history behind human nature and explores the psychological evidence that the human mind is indeed wired to be good. Joining me now for the full hour is Rutger Bregman, historian and best selling author. Well, Rucker Bregman, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Let's go back as far as we can, and I know this this could be a lengthy conversation, and just get to the the, the root of this really interesting question, which is the nature of, of humankind. Are we good? Are we evil? Are we selfish? Are we, are we friendly? Um, where does this begin? I mean, is this
1: biblical? Is it further than that? Where, where do you trace some of these ideas hmm. to? Well, you could argue that, you know, it goes all the way back to the dawn of history Mm. you know some of the first writings that we humans produced maybe in a way were about this question you know what is human nature really like it's a question that many religions many philosophers have grappled with and um the reason is because it's an extraordinarily important question because what you assume in other people is what you get out of them Mm. so your theory of human nature basically determines everything hmm. how you organize your schools how you organize your the workplaces you know how you practice democracy even if if you even believe in democracy <laughs> um, yeah it has just vast repercussions for how we live our lives and also our personal lives by the way so there's a lot at stake here Mm-hmm. I mean, if we look at this from a,
0: from a Judeo-Christian perspective, let's just stay there. I mean, what would we see? Are humans kind,
1: or are we naturally kind of sinful human beings? So one of the fathers of the Church, you know, St. Augustine, famously argued that we humans are natural sinners, mm-hmm. that we are born with original sin, um, as he called it. And this is a version of what uh, some scientists call veneer theory. You know the notion that our civilization is just a thin veneer, just a thin layer, if you will, and that below that lies raw human nature, which is nasty, mm. <laughs> which is basically <laughs> selfish. And this is a hugely popular and influential theory in our culture. So what you see is that it comes back again and again and again. You can find it among Christians but you can also find it among secular Enlightenment philosophers. You know, you can find it among the left, but also among the right. Um, it is, I think, the sort of the... How do you say that? The or philosophy of, of Western culture. Um, so, yeah, it, we encounter it very often in our history. Why do you think that's a compelling way to view humans? So I would say there are a couple of reasons. Um, the most important reason, though, is that a selfish view of human nature is a legitimization of power differences. If you and I cannot trust each other, then we need someone to be in charge, mm. right? We need someone at the top to basically make up the rules. Uh, we need managers. We need kings. We need que- queens. We need CEOs. This this argument was famously put forward by Thomas Hobbes, the British philosopher in the 17th century. He argued that in the state of nature, we lived lives that were just terrible, nasty, brutish, and short in his famous words. So as nomadic hunter-gatherers we were free, but the consequences of that freedom, they, they were terrible. And he argued that at some point in our history, probably around the time we became sedentary and invented agriculture, we gave up our freedom, we signed a social contract, um, and got security in return. Uh, and, and the way we did that is by s- sort of appointing a leviathan, an all-powerful ruler. A leviathan is a biblical sea monster. It's just a metaphor, obviously, in, in Hobbes' uh, uh, work. Um, but that is has been an extraordinary influential argument that we humans, if left to our own devices, um, yeah, we turn out to be really really selfish and, and engage in all kinds of terrible behavior but the way to overcome that is to um, establish hierarchies so i guess this is one of the reasons why why what this pessimistic view of human nature comes back so often because it's in the interest of those at the top to propose this view it's a it's a really really effective legitimization of inequality and power differences Mm, and it continues to run through a lot of art and, and literature i mean i know
0: you talk a lot about lord of the flies by william golding which i think exposes
1: that philosophy perfectly yes absolutely i think this is one of the most influential and famous 20th century examples of veneer theory so i mean many many listeners will have read the book or will have been forced to to read the book in uh in high school um the story is familiar, right? You just got a bunch of kids from a boarding school, you know, a very good British boarding school. And these these are, you know, very civilized, well-educated British boys. Yeah. But then they're in a an airplane crash. They wash up on this uninhabited island. And initially they try to establish a democracy of sorts, but it very quickly breaks down. And at the end of the novel, three of the kids are dead. Um, and many of them have turned into savages. Mm. And the message of that story is, I think, again, civilization is just a thin veneer. It's, even if you have these you know, very well-educated, nice, friendly British boys, you put them in a different environment, more in a, how do you say that, a primordial environment, mm. our, our original state of nature, uh, and they show you who they really are. Um, so, yeah, I thought it would be really interesting to see if this is factually correct, <laughs> you know, to yeah. see if there's ever been a case in all of world history where real kids shipwrecked on a real island, because it would be fascinating, wouldn't it, to yeah. study what would really happen? <laughs> oh, absolutely. But as we're having this
0: conversation, I, I keep just getting thoughts of other examples of this, and and I don't know if you would make this connection exactly, but in my world of, of public radio and podcasting, we're always very low on the listener totem pole compared to things like murder podcasts, right? Mm-hmm. Or true crime <laughs> or things. They always like have like, you know, triple the listeners than I'll ever have. And, and I wonder if, if this is somehow intertwined, because I think part of the narrative of these murder podcasts is that, hey, there might be a murderer in each of us, or the perfectly nice person turned into a devilish creature, and suddenly they were a monster, and they went on some kind of crime rampage. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think yes. there's something very yes. seductive in that what-if aspect of human nature.
1: Yeah. So who was the great Russian novelist who once... Wants- said that there is a a story for every unhappy family you know Mm. or that every unhappy family is different it's i think Uh, tolstoy i believe Uh, oh well there you go you know your classics (laughs) (laughs) so all the happy families they're happy in exactly the same way so that's the problem with goodness and happiness and decency it's quite boring Mm. it's quite difficult to make good art or at least engaging art um to create a series that you genuinely want to binge watch right. <laughs> um, about human goodness, it is possible, I think, but it's difficult. And mm. and I must admit, I'm a complete hypocrite. You know, I love series like Game of Thrones and Succession yes. <laughs> that, you know, uh, basically are about a very different view of human nature than the one I advocate in my, in my book. Yeah.
0: We've done a lot of interviews on the show thinking about power structures and... Uh, my sense is th- the narrative is that um, you know humans have always had some kind of a big chieftain leader at the top who would create laws and organize, and that's been going on forever. But I and I think you would agree with me on this that more modern research looks at very early hunter-gatherer civilizations and shows that they might have been a lot more egalitarian than we thought. And even when we look, um, I think of a you know program we did looking at primates or bonobos. That um, those power structures are actually not the kind of like Trump-like figure you're know, running a government. That
1: these these there are much different systems in place. Yes, so I mentioned Thomas Hobbes, the British philosopher, who believed that humans in the state of nature, when we were were nomadic and gatherers, which we've been for 95 percent of our history, were very selfish and you know lived these terrible lives. Um, a little later, there was this other philosopher, a French philosopher, called Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was sort of his, his adversary. You know, they're always put in the boxing ring mm. uh, together, these two great thinkers. And Rousseau argued that the exact, exact opposite was true, that actually we humans lived lives that were pretty good for the biggest part of our history, that nomadic and gatherers were quite healthy. Um, lived in pretty egalitarian societies, and um, that basically it was civilization that wrecked us, Mm. that everything went wrong. The moment when someone said, look, you see this piece of land here? That's mine. You know, the moment someone invented private property, that was when everything went wrong. So for a long time, people regarded Rousseau as the uh, idealist, you know, as the naive, revolutionary, romantic. But if you now look... At the latest evidence we have from anthropology and archaeology and biology, it seems to be the case that actually Rousseau was right. Mm. <laughs> or he was basically right, at least. There was one mo- uh, moment when I was writing this book when I thought, hmm, maybe that should be the title of the book, Rousseau was right. <laughs> uh, the bu- publisher didn't think it was a good idea. But it is It is very striking to see some of the developments in in these scientific fields. So I take it that this is a view that, you personally believe in? I mean, you find that there's something really
0: at the heart of this that, that strikes you as more true than the Hobbesian argument.
1: Well, look, it's very hard, obviously, to know how humans lived 50,000 years ago. We don't have a time machine, and the evidence we have is always fragmentary. Um, but I do think there is very compelling evidence now. So, there's a really important new theory in evolutionary anthropology called self-domestication theory now we all know what domestication is right you've got cows you've got pigs goats these animals have been domesticated by us over the centuries so that means we've selected the tame animals uh, and we've selected for friendliness and yeah what basically happens is that you start off with a wolf and you end up with a chihuahua Mm -hmm. right that's that's domestication um Charles Darwin, the father of evolutionary theory, already talked about this domestication syndrome. He noted that there are certain traits that appear once you domesticate an animal. So for example, domesticated animals have thinner bones, smaller brains, white spots in their fur, and most importantly, domesticated animals are much more playful, they're much more friendly. as if they It's as if they never really want to grow up, right? The thing is, is that if you look at this list of traits, and if you also look at the, at the genetic changes associated with domestication, it seems to be that we humans have been domesticated as well. So it seems to be that we are domesticated primates. Hmm. But then the question is obviously, who did it? Who domesticated us? And the answer that scientists now give is we domesticated ourselves. So that's why the theory is called self-domestication. Another way to put this is to say we are the product of survival of the friendliest, Hmm. which means that for millennia, it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. And we can see the evidence for this theory still in our own bodies today. So, for example, we humans are the only animal in the whole animal kingdom with the ability to blush, which is very you know, striking again, and which is hard to explain if you believe that humans are fundamentally selfish, because why would fundamentally selfish people involuntarily give away their feelings to other members of their species, right? It doesn't really fit. But if we are hardwired to trust one another, or at least if our body wants to help us establish trust between us, then blushing starts to make sense. Same is true for our eyes. So humans have, have really unique eyes you, you got to imagine there are 200 primate species in total and we are the only one, the only species of primates with white sclera. Um, so white sclera, that's um, uh, the, the space around your irises in your eyes. Um, and th- that, that space is white with humans. And that means we can track each other's gazes. Again, we involuntarily give away what we're looking at. Hmm. We can look one another in the eyes. Um, now, obviously, that's essential for establishing trust, you know, it's essential for friendship, for romance even. Um, and it's pretty unique to humans. So I think that's, that's really fascinating that you can see this, the evidence for this theory of survival of the friendliest in our own bodies still today.
0: Mm. When you mention that about animals which by the way is utterly fascinating and I remember we did a show on on just dogs and domestication and one of the big differences is that um you know wolves um a young wolf pup or a teenage wolf wants to leave the kind of group and go out and have their own life and mm-hmm. create where, whereas domesticated dogs don't want it, that they'd kind of see the human as the home center and stay there mm-hmm. and so but the description you gave of domestication wasn't actually a very pretty one in my mind. It actually depressed me a little bit. I thought, oh, my God, are we weaker and are we just more fragile? And and I also thought, does this mean we can also be controlled much easier? To me, that's what domestication means as well. I mean, a dog is essentially controlled by an owner. Uh-huh. And so do you see what I'm saying?
1: I, 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 yeah, I'm, absolutely. I'm, I'm this both... is the standard assumption that people yeah. have is we talk about a stupid cow, you know, stupid pigs, right, Um, we tend to have very, you know, quite a bad view of the domestication process. But it turns out that it's the secret of our success. You know, there's a really famous experiment that was done by a Russian science scientist called Dmitry Believ. This was done in the 1950s, when actually studying genetics was illegal at the time, you know, the, the, brother of Dmitry Belyev was murdered by the regime uh, because of his research. So this all of this had to be done in secret. Um, and it's one of the most astounding experiments of the 20th century. What Dmitry Belyev did is he started with silver foxes. And silver foxes were very aggressive. They'd never been domesticated before. And he said, OK, let's try and see if we can domesticate this animal. Something that, as I said, had never happened before with any other animal. I mean, usually this, this or in nature, this takes centuries or even longer than that. Um, but he thought that if he would really select for tameness and friendliness, then maybe he could do it in just a couple of decades. And he did. So this domestication syndrome, again, think about the white spots in the fur, thinner bones, smaller brains, more playful behavior, etc., etc. that started to appear quite quickly. But then what's so, so interesting is that another researcher called Brian Hare, years later, almost like 50 years later, started um, doing intelligence tests um, with these animals. And he compared you know, the wild silver foxes to the domesticated silver foxes. And it turns out that the domesticated uh, silver foxes perform much better hmm. on these intelligence tests. So he said at the time, that if you wanna um, have a smart fox, you don't select for intelligence, but you select for friendliness. And so this seems to have happened in human evolution as well. Our secret superpower is not that we are so smart. No, our secret superpower is our ability to cooperate on a scale that no other animal is able to do that is interesting
0: uh, and i do remember speaking to people that studied you know early forms of civilization and they used the word a cooperative species the mm-hmm. ability to bring different bands or tribes together to you know fight certain enemies or to uh, till land or whatever it is and it's true i mean when you think about the the animal kingdom there there are no other animals that as far as we know, tend to have such cooperative behavior, right? I mean, we're pretty unique in that regard.
1: Yes, yes. So uh, if you uh, imagine, say, uh, a tribe of chimpanzees on an airplane, I mean, that would be very, very bloody, you know, all these chimpanzees put together. And we, we humans, we don't particularly enjoy it, you know, all being, you know, True. St- stuck at the airplane. And sometimes, <laughs> you know, people get angry and, and frustrated but in general we survive it <laughs> and that is by itself quite a feat <laughs> yes. um, so obviously uh it's only natural to focus on the negative right and there's there's even some basis for that in human nature itself psychologists call it the negativity bias exactly um there's, there's probably some evolutionary reason for that if you want to survive in the wild you have to focus on, you know, all the dangers, you know, the spider that can kill you, the snake that can bite you, etc. Uh, but today we live in a world where we're being bombarded by bad news all day. Right? That is basically the definition of what we call news. There are a lot of great investigative journalists out there. There are a lot of great people practicing constructive journalism. But in general, you know, just our daily news feed... It's not very good for our mental health, and mm-hmm. psychologists have known this for a long time. That's basically our negativity bias backfiring. Um, but if we zoom out far enough, then it's pretty clear that yeah, the, the the great secret of our success, what what's really our strongest suit, is this ability to cooperate. Yeah. Well, so if I have your argument
0: right, then. That you, Rousseau would claim that that we are essentially, and I know you use this word, a, a decent species. We're 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 pretty good and we're pretty kind to each other. Um, but then we go through the agricultural revolution. There's uh, there's property ownership, and I, I suppose this is where you get the Hobbesian argument that actually no, we're we're very selfish and we want to exclude. But for me to understand your argument correctly, that yes, even as the world has moved in the direction of ownership and, God, social media and news feeds and blah, 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 that still we, we still have that kernel of decency below all of that. Like, we're not totally ruined just
1: because what modern history looks like. You know what I'm saying? Yes, yes. And this is exactly what we see during times of crisis. So very often people think that in a moment of crisis people reveal who they really are, and they start behaving in terrible ways. So watch any Hollywood movie about an earthquake or a disaster or, you know, a pandemic that breaks out, and you see people, you know, who are panicking, who start looting, who start plundering, who really engage in all kinds of terrible behaviors. But we have got decades of sociological and anthropological evidence of how people really behave in times like that. You know, there's a Disaster Research Center in the United States and they've done more than 500 case studies and again and again they find the same pattern. What you actually get in those kind of situations is an explosion of altruism and cooperation. People from the left to the right, young, old, rich, poor, working together. That's that's really the, the common response to that. Um, It's just that people at the top often believe that the opposite is happening. So Katrina is a famous example here. Um, Researchers later established that all these stories, you know, about looting and plundering that that happened in 2005 in New Orleans, those are basically rumors. But at the time, elites believed them. And then what happened was a phenomenon called elite panic. So the elites believed they had to send in the police and the military instead of the emergency services. And what did the police start to do well they started shooting at innocent people Hmm. so it's exactly the other way around it's not that you know the common ordinary people need to control by those in power no it's that most people are pretty decent but power corrupts Mm -hmm. it's not that power saved people you know after katrina no it was the other way around i think of the pandemic
0: for example and in the us these stories of people hoarding things like toilet paper or you know, examples of that and how supermarkets had to be regulated. You could go in and only collect X amount of items. And I, I just wonder if the pandemic to you revealed anything about human nature because I think it's been such a divisive period. But that mm-hmm. might also be the way that the media portrays it. Because I do believe—I I agree with you. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I do, mostly. But I, what did you see over the last two or
1: three years? Well, if you look at the big picture— what we see is that billions of people radically adjusted their lifestyles to stop the virus from spreading further billions of people were willing to make you know quite substantial sacrifices for you know basically helping other people more vulnerable people i think that that to me really is the headline um now obviously there was a lot of polarization going on and maybe especially so in in the US where Wearing a mask, for example, became a symbol of your political affiliation. Mm. But that was not a sign of selfishness in itself. That was a sign of loyalty. So, for example, if you were, you know, maybe more on the right of the political spectrum, you wouldn't wear a mask because that would basically be a betrayal of your, your friends and those on your side. And this is one of the great tragedies that I talk about a lot in this book. It is that we humans are very groupish and tribal as well um we can do the most terrible things in the name of loyalty Mm. um that is really one of the dark sides of human nature which i mean you obviously have to deal with if you write a book like this because it's also pretty clear that we humans are one of the most cruel species in the animal kingdom as well i mean we do things that no other animal would even dream of doing you know, genocides ethnic cleansing warfare on a scale uh, you know that that a chimpanzee chimpanzees could never do um so don't get me wrong it's it's not all um, you know happiness here
0: Yeah. Uh, no i th- that's a really important point in distinction and maybe there's a difference between acting decent or you know trying to take care of what you think your group is so, which would explain these divisions anti-vaccine or whatever because everybody was acting in the way they thought was best for the, the, the society that they lived in or the people that they respected, mm-hmm. I, I think, right? Yes. But at the same time, there's a distinction between that and the idea of some type of innate universal human rights, which say that, you know, as if we have deeply encoded in us this moral purity where we're not going to commit genocide or we're not going to, you know, be racist, mm-hmm. because that, that doesn't seem to exist.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and we have made moral progress in the last couple of centuries. So there's this famous moment when Voltaire, another French philosopher, wrote a letter to Rousseau. Uh, and Voltaire was basically mocking Rousseau and saying, well, if you really like the state of nature so much, why don't you go back and walk on <laughs> four, four legs again, uh-huh. right? Why yeah. don't you go back and live as a nomadic and together? Um, It was a little bit unfair because Rousseau obviously argue that we can't go back and that in some ways we have made some progress and we could make way more progress even and that's that's indeed what has happened since the enlightenment uh, whether we talk about the abolition of slavery or the women's right movement or the establishment of the welfare state i think that in many respects we've you know established civilizations that are much much more impressive than Uh, those hunter-gatherer societies. Mm. But we can learn a lot from those kind of societies. And it's important to know who we are. I think that's really important. Um, Because then we can start and design institutions around our human nature. Mm. And the problem with assuming that people are fundamentally selfish is that we often create the kind of species or create the kind of people that are theory presupposes. Imagine if you're a CEO and you, ima- you really believe that your employees are fundamentally lazy and selfish. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to build a very hierarchical organization, maybe hang cameras everywhere. You know, you need a lot of bureaucracy to make sure that people are actually doing their jobs. It's, it's basically going to make people behave in the way that you think they would behave. Mm. Uh, so that's very, very important to to keep in mind while we discuss human nature is that our theories are never just theories. Our stories are never just stories. We humans, we become the stories that we tell
0: ourselves. If you're just joining us, this is Life Examined on KCRW and my guest this hour is Rutger Bregman, historian and author of Humankind, A Hopeful History. So what do you think? Are we naturally selfish or selfless? Do you believe human nature is intrinsically kind and cooperative as Rutger Bregman has argued? We want to hear what you think, and we encourage you to write into our Facebook community, which is growing. You can find the link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook. We'll be back after this short break. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car. Designed to be Recycled. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard historian and author Rutger Bregman acknowledge the dark side of human nature. Yet Bregman argues moral progress is happening, and human nature is evolving. Bregman argues that society is a reflection of who we are as individuals. If we trust each other and are kind, our institutions will be designed to reflect that. As Bregman puts it, quote, "...we become the stories we tell ourselves." As we rejoin the conversation, Regman explains to me what inspired him to write his book, and how a shift in science and some fascinating new research indicates a more hopeful view of human nature. Let's jump back in. I just had this incredibly depressing thought when I remember reading in the New York Times about the the increase in the way in which employees are monitored all day long, and they're given mm-hmm. rankings, and they're giving scores, and everything is kind of now being watched there's only gains made if someone is efficient or productive. But it's this idea that, oh, left, left to their own devices, they're lazy and wasteful, and they're not going to do anything for the institution. And I just remember reading that and thinking, wow, what, what a world in which there's no longer any trust or freedom or you know, privacy yeah. given to one's working life, which dominates such a large part of their
1: day. Yeah, yeah. But maybe to give you a little bit of hope, I had basically two reasons why I wanted to write this book. The first reason was that I saw a shift in science. So many psychologists, anthropologists, archaeologists, psychologists were moving to a more hopeful view of human nature. And many of these people were highly specialized and didn't really know what was going on in a field next to theirs. Mm. And I thought someone should write a book about the bigger picture. You know, there's really something bigger going on here. The second reason was that I also perceived a shift in the zeitgeist. You know, so many people who seemed to be part of a movement that hadn't been named yet. Uh, entrepreneurs who were trying to build different kind of companies that were grounded in a more hopeful view of human nature. Um, civil servants that were designing policies. Um, people who experimented with different ways of doing democracy. Um, so again, very varied examples. And often people didn't realize that they were part of something bigger, right? So that's that's also so, something going on uh, mm. at the same time, and I, I do see some reason for hope there.
0: I, I'd love any other examples you can give. You mentioned psychologists or people doing research. Was there anybody in your book that really just stuck
1: out to you as being important? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a simple example. So many people will have heard about the bystander effect. This is this phenomenon, phenomenon um, described in psychology where Well, imagine someone's drowning and a lot of people witness it happening, or someone's attacked in the street and a lot of people witness it happening. Psychologists believed for a long time that the more people would see it, the less likely it was that the victim would be helped Mm -hmm. because people would be like, you know what, it's not my responsibility. Someone else can do it right. And especially in the big anonymous city, this effect was supposed to be, you know, Uh, Omnipresent. And uh, yeah, the bystander effect was was basically this quite pessimistic theory of how people behave. Uh, But all this evidence was based on lab experiments. And as you maybe or probably know, um, psychology has gone through quite a crisis lately called the replication crisis. So many of the old results, you know, they they can't be replicated um, Hmm. if they do the experiment again. And now there's this researcher called Marie Lindegard who thought, well, let's take another look at the bystander effect, but then let's not rely on these artificial situations uh, where, you know, there's some kind of make-believe situation where they try and um, uh, convince a subject that something bad is happening and then study how that subject behaves. No, let's just look at the behavior of real people in real life, because today there are cameras everywhere. Mm. Uh, And there are some benefits to that. You can use it to study how people really behave. So she built a huge database of videos from four big cities, um, Amsterdam, Copenhagen, London, and Cape Town. And, yeah, was able to just ask this question again. How do people really behave when someone's attacked in the street, when someone's drowning? And so she was able to calculate the number, (laughs) you know, basically the amount of cases where people really help one another. And it turns out that the real number for real people in real life is 90%. Hmm. So in 90% of all cases, a bystander intervenes. And you know what? The more people witness something happening, the more likely it is that someone will help because people will find support in one another. So that meant that sixty years of research into the bystand effect, you know all these laboratory experiments uh, you could we could basically throw them in the bin uh, because this this new evidence was obviously the most powerful evidence you can have it 's about real people who don 't realize you know they're they're being studied uh these are real situations um, and uh yeah, the answer was much more hopeful. Hmm and there's something in me that that does naturally agree with this
0: i, I i've been really lucky to travel through some you know pretty far flung areas across the world mm-hmm. and granted i i mean i'll I'll talk about my privilege here i'm a white male maybe that mm-hmm. plays into this as well i don't doubt it but i but i have noticed almost anywhere i have been in moments of distress whether you know it was in india or to europe or to africa wherever there was always someone there to help, actually, someone in mm-hmm. the village, someone traveling. like I, I, I've never been in a situation where I just felt like, "You know what the world has turned on me, It's an evil place." And mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I, you're someone who's Absolutely. probably been through that too, that or if uh-huh. I've had a flat tire somewhere or some, my dog has run off, I mean, it's just when I think about my life concretely with examples, I see more help than I do
1: hatred around me, yeah. You know, as an author, you receive quite a few emails from readers around the globe. And you know what? There's no group of readers that agrees more with me than the hitchhikers. (laughs) It's really the hitchhikers. (laughs) Yeah, they're really my group of people. (laughs) Uh uh Um, Yeah, I guess just traveling around the globe and meeting so many people from so many different parts and again and again, having this experience of complete strangers helping you that really has an impact on how you see the world and this is this is one of the problems in some societies you know it's one of the reasons why for example i don't really like cars you know cars are these like small prisons (laughs) where you know we can't look one another in the eye anymore and that's why people often behave terribly in a car you know they don't see other people anymore and then they you know start swearing and shouting and blah 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 i live in the netherlands and as you probably know in the netherlands we have more bicycles than inhabitants and i i like to think that that's a more humane way of transport um i mean we can still get angry Mm. you can even get stuck in bike traffic (laughs) in 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 utrecht where, where i live but um it's it's very important that we design institutions organizations ways of transport you name it where we where we can see one another, where we can look one another in the eye, um, we we humans have been built for face-to-face contact, uh, mm. or not built, obviously, but evolved uh, for that. And again, that's why I think it's important to know something about where we've come from. Mm. One thing you've written about, which I found interesting, and it does factor into this,
0: is how power plays into our sense of empathy or the ways in which that power corrupts i mean that's a line we've heard forever that power is a corrupting force Mm -hmm. what what do you know about there what have you seen in the research that either supports that theory
1: or it says it's totally wrong it seems to be the case that power is a dangerous drug that power always needs to be kept in control um if we again look at the nomadic gatherers, they had ways of doing this. So shame was very important in those kind of societies. If you were a leader, then it was basically obligatory to be humble. Humbleness was an absolute prerequisite. So imagine you're a great hunter and you come back after a day of hard work and you brought back some, you know, some great animal um that you uh, that you managed to kill. Um then uh what you would do is you would sit by the campfire, and someone would ask, like, "Did you did you you know catch anything today? Mm. How was the hunt?" And then you would say, nah, "Not really, you know, nothing. You know, it was actually, uh, yeah, yeah, very bad." And then people would know, you know, tonight's going to be a feast. <laughs> mm. uh, there was a, even a practice; it's been described in some hunter-gatherer societies called insulting the meat. So, you know, the bigger the meat was that people brought in the more insulting people were, basically to to signal, like, don't think too much of yourself, you know, don't let it go to your head. And if that would happen, you know, if people would be too narcissistic, then that would be very dangerous for them. They could be cast out of the group. And if you're expelled in a nomadic and together society, especially during the ice age I mean that's basically a death sentence your friends are your insurance policy you're utterly reliant on your friends so that's one of those reasons why these societies managed to stay egalitarian and how they managed to tame those in power now obviously in in much bigger societies like we have today you can't always use the power of shame but it is a telling sign that very often we can't imagine our political leaders even blushing anymore even though that's this very special unique human ability. Mm. And you've I mean, even looked at studies that have shown how power can change one's brain. Yes, yes. So um there's some pre- preliminary neurological evidence that shows that the experience of power, you know, just this feeling like I'm in control, I'm on top, I am the powerful person in this room can disconnect you from the rest of society. Um, so, one very important human uh, psychological mechanism is what psychologists call mirroring. We, we humans, we mirror each other all the time. You yawn and I start yawning as well. right? You laugh and I start laughing as well. It's, it's very, a lot of our behavior is just contagious. But it seems to be the case that under the influence of power, that mirroring becomes less important. And the, yeah, the more powerful you feel, the more disconnected you are from from the rest of society. Um, powerful people are often more cynical, less empathetic, mm. um, and yeah. So there's, there's 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 basically some admittedly preliminary evidence from neurology that indeed uh, is in line with something that well historians have known for a long time that power just corrupts and. As Lord Acton said, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm. And of course,
0: you look around the world, whether it's what's happening in China or Putin or a number of places, some say we're kind of living in this era now of of the, of the kind of the totalitarian regime and the person yes. at the top or, you know, Kim Jong-un. Or I mean, it seems to be happening around us at a fairly
1: scary rate. Yes, yes. And always these... Powerful people have very cynical views of human nature. It's interesting that this hopeful view of humanity has always been regarded as very dangerous. So, for example, you had the anarchist philosopher Peter Kropotkin. I had a chapter about him in the book, but the book was already getting too long, so I Uh had to cut it. (laughs) But uh, at the end of the 19th century, he made a really important... Uh, contribution to science so he was one of the first evolutionary theorists and researcher who um, argued that cooperation is just as important as competition in the evolution of species and I mean um, Darwin famously went to the Galapagos Islands but Kropotkin went to Siberia and in Siberia life was tough right the main enemy that people had was nature itself Or that animals had was nature itself and so what Kropotkin saw there was fascinatingly much more cooperation Mm -hmm. Um, and um, he was also an anarchist and well if you want to summarize anarchist philosophy it's uh, most people are pretty decent but power corrupts Uh, and at some point uh, Kropotkin who was by the way he was the son of a prince he was you know, followed around the globe. He had to flee for his life, being tracked by the Russian secret service. Because these people at the top realized that his view of human nature, his hopeful view of human nature, was downright seditious. You know, it was threatening to them. Because if we can really trust one another, why do we still need the autocrats? Mm. Why do we still need the CEOs and the kings and the queens and the managers and you name it? Maybe we don't need them. You see, so the, the impact or the implication of a theory like that is quite revolutionary. Mm. Uh, That's interesting. And it occurs to me that you yourself have
0: have become quite well known through your books and your ability to communicate. And with that comes, I think, a certain level of social power, cultural power. Do Do you ever worry about yourself? Just
1: how it may change you as you continue to have greater influence? Oh, absolutely. This is a big, big danger that authors face, especially once they become one-man symphonies or Mm. teams or what do you want to call it um so you gotta surround yourself with people who yeah are basically uh in a position to quite strongly criticize your work now i wrote this book um as someone who uh, as a journalist for a dutch journalism platform called the correspondent And the correspondent was founded 10 years ago as an antidote against the news. We thought that fake news was not the problem. We thought that real news was the real, the biggest problem, actually, Um, because the news is mostly about what goes wrong. And it often makes you very pessimistic. It makes you more cynical, right? It doesn't mean we just want to write about things that go well, but we do want to focus on the structural forces that govern our lives um, and zoom out and also focus on the people who are already coming up with solutions. So this journalism platform is completely member funded. And, um, we, uh, we think that we can learn a lot from those members. So often journalism is, uh, you know, it's a one directional thing, right? You, it's the journalists talking and the rest have, have to listen, mm-hmm. uh, but your readers know a lot. So what we did from the beginning is we said, okay, we, so we don't want to hear your opinions, but we want to know what you know what you can contribute and so people can include their expertise we will verify their expertise and then we basically ask quite specific questions after every op-ed or essay or whatever like okay what do you know what you can you contribute and uh, that's how i've been writing this book so every chapter was an essay on the correspondent and i received a huge amount of feedback from thousands of readers and um that helped me a lot to be honest um and uh, i think has also uh, uh helped me to uh yeah edit out qu- qu- some quite significant mistakes that were th- that were there initially yeah um but yeah you always got to think about how power can corrupt you as well
0: mm. well how do you think just your the place from which you come from, and the fact that uh, you're also a white male, and that you're in the Netherlands. And I think we have this kind of very romantic view of life in the Scandinavian countries, that mm-hmm. some might say, hey, well, for, for you, yeah, that's how you see the world. Life is good. Life is kind of easy. It's better than it is, say, if you're, you know, a, an African American male growing up in Louisiana. That, mm-hmm. that book that that man may write be, could be very different. So how would you respond to something like that?
1: I think that one of the reasons why uh, we've seen this revolution in science is because of the feminization of science. Um, Many of the proponents of veneer theory have been white males who were maybe Consciously or subconsciously looking for ways to justify their power. Mm. So, for example, in psychology in the 1960s, you had famous researchers like Stanley Milgram or later Philip Zimbardo, who came up the, with the Stanford Prison Experiment, which turned out to be a complete hoax. Uh, many of these men were, I think, quite, how do you say that? Narcissistic, maybe even corrupted by power. And what we've now seen is that a new generation of younger researchers, and, and very often, Uh, Female researchers have debunked those narratives and have emphasized a different side of human nature. And this is also what we've seen in anthropology, actually. In the 1970s, anthropology and biology was dominated by theories of human selfishness. Uh, Richard Dawkins famously wrote The Selfish Gene, in which he argued, quote, "Uh, we have to teach altruism and generosity to our kids because we are born selfish. and that, you know, fit very uh, nicely in the zeitgeist at the time. You know, this was also the era in which uh, neoliberalism was rising and and people were saying, oh, governments can't do anything and inequality is not, n- not a problem at all. Um, but now uh, what's happened since then is that a new generation of, of anthropologists, and again, often female anthropologists, so Sarah Hardy, for example, has developed this cooperative breeding uh, theory, where she argues that, um, indeed, uh, humans are highly, highly cooperative, and it's not just the mothers, but also the fathers, actually, in uh, nomadic and together tribes who play an important role. So, um, yeah, you could even argue that these nomadic and togetherers were sort of proto-feminists. I just became a father myself, and uh, Mm. I had a long, long paternity leave of three months, And no, that's not some kind of weird Dutch thing. That's actually the natural human way, (laughs) I'd argue. Um, So, um, yeah, I I completely get your point. Obviously, I'm a highly privileged person from a very privileged part of the globe. But I do like to believe that it's not just my personal subjective experience of the world. There really has been something happening in science here. Well, finally, I wonder if there's a last
0: message or idea you wanted to leave our listeners with. I think we've got some really
1: important stuff today, but but where, where would you like to end this as we close out? You know, it's been uh, a couple of years since I uh, finished writing the book. It was published in 2019 in the Netherlands and then a year later in English. And um, there's some distance now, you mm-hmm. know, between me and the book. And then you start to see its flaws as well. Uh, At some point, I started seeing these images of people on social media, on Instagram, for example, reading my book on a beach with a glass of white wine and saying, huh, life is wonderful after all. (laughs) Humans are fundamentally decent, Uh you know, and I'm enjoying enjoying my holiday here. Cheers. And then I thought, oh my God, I've created a monster. (laughs) Uh Um, So it is really important that we assume the best in others, but sometimes it's also really helpful to... Be suspicious of ourselves and be suspicious of our own motives. Um, you know, in in self in the self-help literature, there's this tendency to always say like you're good the way you are. Yes. But mm-hmm. but sometimes it's good to say no, you're not good the way you are, and maybe in some ways you're standing on the wrong side of history. For us, it's easy to look back and you know judge those people in the past who engaged in the slavery and 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 you know who treated women in a terrible way and and and, and you know witch hunts and and gladiator fights like the romans did there there's so many you know just horrible stuff that happened in the past, and then we often feel so civilized. but maybe the historians of the future will look back on us and will be horrified in a similar way by some of the things we do today. so that's a question I often ask myself, and that may be a subject for a new book uh which is like who are the abolitionists of today? Who are those people who are standing on the wrong side, uh, on the right side of history and are often being dismissed as, you know, a pain in the ass. Right. Uh, who are sometimes quite unfriendly as well. <laughs> That's often where progress starts, you know, with people who are willing to be unfriendly, to go against the group who are yeah, making you uncomfortable. So, uh, yeah, but you always have to uh, yeah, repair the damage of your of your last book in your new book. And that's then, right. That's what <laughs> the life of a writer is, uh, is all about. <laughs> that's right.
0: I've been speaking with Rutger Bregman, historian, philosopher, and author of Humankind, A Hopeful History. I, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for just spending the hour with us. Um, we appreciate the time. Thank you. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for joining us. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.